Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, with special guest, renowned author and pediatrician, Dr. Mark Vonnegut. Brought to you by Beer Brewery, Taste of Havana Restaurant, and listeners like you. I'm Will Higgins with the Indy Star, and tonight on the Story Hour, a conversation between two old friends, both acclaimed writers. Mark Vonnegut is a full-time physician in Massachusetts, where he lives with his wife and son, and where, in a survey of nurses, he was named top pediatrician in Boston. He's the author of the books The Eden Express and Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness, only more so. He gives talks to the National Alliance on Mental Illness and to other patient support groups. His parents were from Indianapolis, and his father wrote novels and short stories. Dan Wakefield was a friend of Mark's father and mother, and has been a friend of Mark for more than 40 years. Wakefield believes if it were not for Mark, he would not have had the honor and the honest work and the pay of editing and writing introductions to the books Kurt Vonnegut Letters and If This Isn't Nice, What Is? Vonnegut's graduation speeches. The other stuff Dan writes can be found on his website, danwakefield.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Mark Vonnegut and Uncle Dan Wakefield. Mark, it's great to have you here, and I want to start by letting you dispel a myth, the myth that you grew up the son of a rich and famous writer. I, yeah, thankfully I did not. I think money is a toxin, and the money didn't hit until I was out of the house. And uh, I grew up with a father I worried about, who seemed rather fragile, <clears throat> at one point needed to borrow $100. So that's the truth. <laughs> he borrowed, I think, from your paper out money. He did. And yeah. he also, uh, I mean, he w it, it, it would have been hell to grow up. Uh, people say, what was it like to have a father who was a cultural icon? And I say, well, blessedly, he was not. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I loved in your in your book, uh, just like someone without mental illness, where you write about growing up with your father and mother, and also about being a pediatrician and founding a commune. But uh, you said that when the money hit, no one except Kurt ever got quite used to it. He felt that rightful order had been restored. <laughs> It, it reminded me of a friend I have in L.A., Tom Nolan, who is a writer now, and he came, his parents took him to L.A. as a child actor. He had a complicated French name, and they, the studio gave him the name of Little Tommy Nolan. He was on one of the original Western series, and he was famous at that time, and there were Little Tommy Nolan comic books. And he was interviewed once by Rolling Stone, and they asked, how did you feel when you were 10 years old 
and there were little Tommy Nolan books with your picture on the cover. And he said, I felt it was only right. <laughs> so, Now, Kurt, at, you know, it amazed me that after all he had accomplished and stuff, at one point he told me that he felt he had restored the family fortune. And I felt that was an odd thing, because he had done a lot more. But what he was talking about was uh, Lieber Lager Beer, which um, his great-grandfather had a brewery called Lieber Lager Beer in Indianapolis, and it must be some sort of a progenitor of this beer or whatever. So that was the family fortune, which poisoned a few generations. And then the Depression made us sort of normal, and, uh, and so forth. But money is an interesting part of any story. Well, also... Uh you, you said in your book that, in fact, when people thought of you as the son of a rich and famous writer, uh, it was, wasn't always good. People sort of, as you said, they like to see the sons of rich and famous people do poorly or get into trouble. And uh, when I read that in your book, I remember in New York in the 50s, when I used to go to the White Horse Tavern, there was a guy who came, used to come in there who was the son of a very famous Freudian analyst of the time. And somehow my friends and I, we used to say, oh my God, there's Gregory so-and-so's son. Look, you think he's getting drunk. And we, we'd be really happy that this kid was, you know, messing up. So there's really something to that. Someone wants came up to me and said they thought I had hung myself in a barn in New Jersey, and I said, how romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is romantic, too. You said in your book that your childhood was like being raised by wolves. Could you expand on that? <laughs> well, I, I didn't feel like anybody else, and I didn't, sort of looking around, uh, I didn't feel like my parents were like anybody else. And I felt like I had not had the socialization and given the code of rules of how to behave. And so I, I felt like I was making things up on my own. And for better, for worse, I had, you know, you know, I felt largely in charge of my parents much of the time. They were wolves doing the best they could. And uh, your father sometimes murmured about the possibility of committing suicide. Yeah. And, and uh, so you felt a little bit responsible. Yeah. God bless him. The man, you know, accomplished so much, among other things, you know, raising a bunch of children and all that. You know, he could have just been just another broken PTSD vet who killed himself. But instead, by becoming an artist and stuff, he accomplished a hell of a lot but I did at the time, I at times said, it's not really exactly fun to grow up with your father casually saying he might kill himself. <laughs> so, But on the <laughs> other hand, there was also, you say, a lot of laughter in yeah. your family and yeah. a lot of, the, of everybody. And I love this passage. Uh, there's a passage in your book where your parents went out to buy some stuff and they came home dancing. Uh, they had been dancing in the aisle because there was some song playing, and they came home dancing and walking in the floor, cracking up laughing. So that's pretty good. But the other thing is, I was lucky enough to know uh, both Kurt and Jane. And Jane, your mom, was a remarkable and lovely person. And you, you say in the book, and I know I've heard this a lot, 
Jane believed more than Kurt that he would someday be a famous writer. And she promoted and clung to this belief uh, as a way to make sure that he didn't kill himself. His mother had allegedly killed herself. I say allegedly because not everyone thought so, and I wanted that doubt to lessen the chances of my father doing the same. But Jane was somebody who just projected mm -hmm. good feeling, and she did an enormous amount. As you know, I just this summer worked with a literary critic and friend of Kurt uh, named Jerome Klinkowitz to put together a book of the complete stories of Vonnegut, and uh, Professor Klinkowitz sent me this tribute to Jane. He said, most of all, every Vonnegut reader owes a huge debt to Jane Vonnegut, who during these lean years kept meticulous files that held the stories he published and preserved the ones that were finished but rejected. As her husband's work began to draw critical attention, she patiently answered requests for bibliographic information, sending me a detailed list in 1971 that has been the foundation for much of my work afterwards. Today at the Lilly Library at Indiana University, researchers see evidence of her organizational hand everywhere and have proclaimed her their patron saint. It's absolutely true that yeah, yeah. Um, all he did was sit down and write the stuff. Without, <laughs> I mean, w without my mother, there's no, there's no way on earth that he would have kept writing or, or been a father or anything else. You know, so when I'm sometimes introduced and people like to say, you know, the son of Kurt Vonnegut, I would say, and could you please put in also the son of Jane? Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I love that his, his time, he was really struggling to make a living and as a writer and mainly selling stories to the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, the big short story magazines of the time. And I really admired the fact, as I did some of this research, that unlike most writers, when he got a rejection, instead of thinking the editors were nuts, he decided that that story wasn't good enough. I, I don't know of any other writer who's had that thought. <laughs> and, uh, and so he worked extraordinarily hard and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. You have some uh, memories of his time as a car salesman. Tell us about that. Well, it's part of the, th the thing is Kurt wrote because he really had no gifts as an employee in other, any other line of work. But he ran across sobs at the time uh, when the doors opened forwards. These were not fancy cars, but he thought that they were better than Volkswagen. So he inquired and got the dealership for uh, Massachusetts, and it was a complete disaster. Uh, you know, even a good salesman would have had a hard time selling a car you had to add oil to the gas with. But he would take people driving, and his idea of showing them how uh, front-wheel drive worked was to accelerate through corners. 
And But he did not let the customers drive the car. He drove the car. And it was up to me to kindly say, Dad, it might go better if you let them drive every once in a while. I mean, just in general, he sincerely tried to be a good car salesman. He was unable to get a job teaching English at Cape Cod Community College. He briefly tried to write for Sports Illustrated, and he lasted uh, one morning. He was given an assignment to write a story about a racehorse which had broken out of the winner's circle and uh, jumped a fence. And he sat there with his material all day long, thinking and thinking and thinking. And at the end of the morning, he wrote, the horse jumped over the fence and, 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 and walked out of the building unemployed again. You know? <laughs> well, an amazing part of your growing up was that in the midst of all this, with your father trying to eke out a living and doing all these different things, I remember once he invented a board game and he invented a, a bow tie that he thought would be popular among high school students. Then uh, was the coming of what in your family were called the orphans. Yeah. That was occasioned by Kurt's oldest sister dying of cancer. And the next day, her husband was on a commuter train from New Jersey to New York, and the train went off a bridge and he was killed. Yeah. So suddenly, his Kurt's sister's children were orphans, and Kurt immediately got in the car, drove to New Jersey, and brought them back to the Cape yeah. to live with the rest of you, and I think they brought their dogs, too. Two dogs, a rabbit, uh, and four boys, yeah. <laughs> ranging in age from 18 months to 14 years. And I'll get tearful when I say that at the drop of the hat, he did the right thing, which is said, I'm going to take care of these children. He also, thankfully, Jane had the muscle to actually do it. <laughs> yeah, and, and he also, I mean, it gave, he used to complain about, oh, with all these kids and all this noise, I can't work. And later in life, I clicked out, well, let's, let's just see. While distracted with all this horrible noise, he wrote, Sirens of Titan, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, Cat's Cradle, uh, Mother, Night. Mother Night, and Slaughterhouse Five. I think most of us would take that for a five-year output with kids screaming in the background. And not, you, know. you graduated from Swarthmore, where your mother had been. By the way, I love the story that your mother was a English major, as quite a scholar of Phi Beta Kappa, and on their honeymoon made Kurt read the Brothers Karamazov, uh, which was good for uh, her, his education. A big change, after you graduated, you wrote that, uh, well, first of all, you wanted to not go to Vietnam, and you were able to stay out of the draft by working at Boston State Mental Hospital and then presenting yourself a person who was not going to go into the Army. I presented myself honestly as somebody who would not do well as a soldier, and I tried to, um, when I went into the physical, I was wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, and I had an attitude where I could not see anybody without seeing blood and gore. So when they asked us all to put uh, valuables into a baggie, everybody else was gone. I was still trying to get the cowboy hat into the baggie. They kept moving me along, uh, but I was, you know, I projected no redeeming 
social value whatsoever. And I, I remember the questionnaire about homosexuality, and I'd check yes, erase it, check no, erase it. I'd virtually work my way through the paper. And the psychiatrist said, well, what's this about homosexuality? I would have hit him, but I got up in his face, and I said, uh, I don't give a what your stamp says. I'm not going near your army. And he said, relax, son. You are out. And, but that was, you know, that was not an act. <laughs> I would not have done well. Uh, and I think a lot of people just sort of tried to be social and be nice and go along, and then they were, ended up in the jungle uh, with a gun. Well, and so really the next important move after that, you sit right that in 1971, along with a bunch of similarly idealistic, long-haired hippies, I traveled across the continent and managed to buy 80 acres 12 miles from the coast. We camped out while cutting down lumber and building a shelter. It wasn't as hard as we thought it would be. We managed to keep ourselves warm, entertained, and well-fed. There were lots of people doing similar things in similar places up and down the coast and back east. Whether or not Western civilization was about to collapse, it had to be good news that setting up independent alternative communities was doable. We were proving it was possible to achieve escape velocity. And so you started one of the first communes. And we're going to take a break. But before that, our beloved saxophone player, Sophie Fott, is going to play a song that I think could be a theme song for the communes. It's actually a song I did play in British Columbia. I took, one of the things I took was my tenor saxophone. And in the middle of nowhere, on, on top of a, a roof, I would play this song. There's a place for us.
abso absolutely beautiful. And, uh, you know, the thing I want people to remember, I think we've told, been told a lot of lies about the 60s. I think we, uh, you know, people think it was all about, we were all stoned all the time. It was all about drugs uh, and Charlie Manson and we spit on the troops, and all of that is completely untrue. I think people have been sold. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of seriousness, a lot of beauty, a lot of serious thought, and, um, and sure, like anybody else, we made some mistakes. <laughs> the one I kind of joke about is, really, we honestly didn't know drugs were bad for you. And I wanted to be the public service that my generation really, beyond shadow of a doubt, nobody has to wonder anymore. Drugs really are bad for you. So, but, but, but there was a seriousness and a beauty to the 60s that's been lost. And, uh, and it wasn't about drugs. And it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about freedom. It was about service. Great. Okay. I want to add something important that Mark wrote in addition to what he just said about the misinterpretations of the 60s and of commune life. He wrote this, we didn't say wow a lot. Most of us didn't believe in astrology or gurus or reincarnation or violent revolution but we probably gave too much slack to those who did because they too were anti-establishment and the establishment was so corrupt and flat out wrong. I always had my saxophone and I always played my heart out. I, I know Mark has written very honestly in both books, uh, first the Eden Express about the commune experience and about his break, but I think a misinterpretation has gone around that he went to the commune and took a lot of acid and then got sick and was in a mental hospital. But that's not the way it happened, and I think you should tell how it started. Well, I have an embarrassingly modest uh, drug history for somebody in the 60s. I had actually had a uh, mescaline trip that went badly earlier, and I felt that that meant I was a flawed person. You know, and then I had an acid trip uh, on the commune that went rather well. I felt really good, so I now verified I was a good person. It was separate. Yes, there were drugs uh, back then, but also uh, mental illness has been around in my family for at least four or five generations, and they, you know, they weren't doing drugs, <laughs> you know. And I think a lot of people in my family have uh, learned to use uh, alcohol as a mood stabilizer. Works for a while. People want to encapsulate something and say, well, that that was a bad choice. He took drugs and he went crazy. I took a lot less drugs looking around, probably the most people in this room. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so uh, at one point with the commune, you, you had a good friend who saw to it that he got in touch with Kurt and got you to a mental hospital in British Columbia with the amazing name of the Hollywood Hospital. 
which must have been very disorienting. Was also in on Fifth Avenue in New Westminster, so there was something, <laughs> there was something you could associate with all of it. And finally, when I heard that, I said, "Okay, I think I get it." You know. Well, and if you read his books, you'll see the whole story. We don't have time to tell the whole story now, but I think it's important to say that your your father came up, and then your mom Jane came up. And after you got out of the hospital, uh, stayed with you in an apartment and cooked and just, you know, led a life. And you went back to Cambridge and you eventually, oh, you started out doing some landscaping. Then you applied to medical school. Uh, what gave you that idea? I was trying to be normal on steroids. I, you know, <laughs> I thought uh, I, I, I truly was, I think. You know, thank God I've gotten over it, but I think I had to try to prove I was normal and not damaged goods. And it was really an exciting thing to me that I figured out I could work uh, landscape, and then I could do substitute teaching, and then I went to UMass Boston, and I could do calculus. So this was all, you know, but I, in retrospect, I, uh, I wish I had been not quite so driven, but if I hadn't been so driven, I probably wouldn't have gotten into medical school, and all's well that ends well. But it was, there was a, you know, it was incredibly unlikely uh, that somebody with my history, and I was six years older than everybody else, it's incredibly unlikely that I could have gotten into medical school. In fact, I applied to 20 and got into one. The hysterical funny thing is it was Harvard. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 been, it's been a great ride, but I, I wouldn't say anything about it has been, you know, likely. And, and I think this is important, too, that you have said, my psychotic breaks and mental illness are not indictments of the times or of our farm. It's taken a while to sort out, but I think I recovered and have done well as I have partly because of the farm, that commune, and the times. When push came to shove, I had a good dog and some good friends, and I was far away from all the things I might have blamed had I lost it at college or back east, and he's really saying no blame, because usually people mm -hmm. want to blame, oh, it was this or that, or it was those times, or one of those things, and he's not uh, doing that. And I think what's the most brave thing about his new book is that he records that after all this wonderful story, and of course it's a great story, he went to the commune, he ended up in a mental hospital after taking drugs, and then he came back and got into Harvard Medical School and became a beloved pediatrician. But it doesn't end there. And he had three other breaks that he writes about and required it, hospitalization. Yeah, it's... Um you know, it did make a lovely story. <laughs> Wrap it up with a bow and be done with mental illness. I love the irony of some of the things that have happened, like that uh, being Boston Magazine's number one pediatrician. I, I learned about that. That was published right after I got out of the hospital. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, so I've been very, very lucky all the way along the line. But it, it certainly could have very easily been otherwise. And... Uh, I, I think it's important to say that after the third break, 
after you were a working doctor and were hospitalized, even in the hospital where you were working, that you decided that you would eliminate anything from your life that might set off one of these breaks. And I'd like you to tell about that. Well, it was sort of a, not a high point in your career to be in four-point restraints and boxer shorts with nurses whose kids you take care of coming by and saying, Dr. Vaughn, I said, don't, oh, don't worry, everything's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, and how's little Frankie doing? Uh, <laughs> I have sort of, I think somebody with mental illness is sort of forced into virtue. I mean, you can't just, you don't just choose it. You see that the price you pay for drugs, alcohol, dishonesty, whatever, is really, really much too high. And I think uh, what my thought, I think it's analogous, and I think uh, Kurt realized was the price he would have had to pay for not being honest and not being a good writer was his own health. Uh, so I have been, you know, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky. I think, you know, I could have, I guess, chosen to eat well and get exercise and not drink or smoke cigarettes, but I was really, I really, everything good I've done has been mostly at gunpoint. You know, looking back now, uh, you know, my father seemed like a very touch-and-go operation, uh, and I certainly could have fallen flat on my face. And so what I, you know, I think the point of all this is I think mental illness is something that when people get better from and they can put on a suit and tie and pretend it never happened, that's what most people do. And what you don't realize is I don't think there's a family in this country uh, that doesn't have a run-in with serious mental illness, and because it never gets talked about, uh, it doesn't get treated you know, not good, not good. And uh, I, I, I love uh, a brief thing that you wrote about, which I think is your key to success as a pediatrician. <clears throat> Mark wrote, uh, I'm a shameless, eclectic pragmatist in my work as a pediatrician. Having raised three of them myself, I'm well aware that most adolescents and pre-adolescent boys would rather drink poison or gargle with razor blades than talk with a therapist, but they also don't want things to go on the way they've been going. They'd like their parents to change, but we dismiss that in 30 seconds or less as being not happening. <laughs> I mentioned therapy as something I can probably get them out of, if they're willing to clean up their damn room, stop slamming doors, do their homework, maybe eat a little better and get some exercise and stop swearing at their mother. Most of the time, they think they can do this. I point out that if things go well or not, they can always go back to swearing at their parents and slamming doors, and I want to see them in a week or two to see how the experiment is going. Acupuncture, acupressure, yoga, IEPs, social schools, uh, skills, groups, it truly doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I put, you know, I want to never say, here's your Prozac, we're done. I have been thanked later, you know, kids will come back to me and say, thank God you told my parents to get me a dog. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, in the long list of things that might help, I, you know, uh, 
why not a puppy? You know, why, <laughs> you know, uh, there's no double blind experiments, and I don't think most of what I do does not fall into evidence based medicine, which is one of the biggest lies and con jobs around. Uh, but anyway. What, what, and, and speaking of lies and con jobs, I'm, I'm really, really anxious for you to clarify something that is very unclarified in this culture, that Obamacare is not the culprit of why we're paying a lot of money, mm -hmm. that it is the insurance business. Had Obama been allowed to do what he wanted to do, which was to create a federal program which would have competed directly with the insurers, uh, uh, and had the pharmaceutical industry not insisted on being able to set their prices for EpiPens and anything else wherever they wanted, and he had to have political giveaways that allowed those things to happen to get 20 more million people to get medical care. The amazing thing is 20 million poor sick people actually did get a little bit of medical care. All of the financial headaches and far from ideal things were imposed upon him by Congress and Senate and the big industries. So I, you know, I have lots of quibbles. I will, you know, and I know times are going to change, and I think we'll all survive. But uh, Obamacare wasn't really Obamacare anyway. And 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 as I understand it, all this system was started with the insurance companies. Abs absolutely. What they have created is a game where every household in this country, either through taxes or tax-supported programs or individual or employer-based, the, the price tag is everybody throws $20,000 into the kitty, average family gets back something worth less than $100, and they get to keep the change. So uh, they have fun blaming it on the pharmaceutical industry, and the pharmaceutical industry says we have a fiduciary responsibility to ourselves and our shareholders to hold children over a barrel, and we'll let them die if you don't give us $800. Uh, and there's no, so anyway, it is, it's, um, it, it, it is, I think it has always been a bit of a pyramid scheme where they can't suck in enough money at the bottom anymore to pay off the people at the top. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's an ugly game, and the idea of actually helping people uh, is, is very, very, very far down the line. Yeah. Well, thank you for that clarity, which I <laughs> think is very important. And my own doctor in Miami, who I think of as my real doctor, is very, uh, in, endorses that highly. Something you and I are both interested in and I love what you have written about this in different ways, is the relationship of art and creativity and mental illness. And too often, people get the formula, oh, he's doing art or writing, and so that'll make him crazy. I even you know, used to read that Anne Sexton, who is a friend of mine and a great poet, People used to say, oh, uh, you know, writing poetry made her crazy. Well, I would say it was the booze that she was drinking all the time, more than the f poetry. And in fact, she, she used to say, the poetry is what saved me. Right. And I think this is true 
all good art that I'm aware of, if you dig a little bit, is about people telling the truth because they have to to save their own lives. I would say that's true about my father's work. Um, it's also an interesting historical fact uh, that Van Gogh did not kill himself. That whole myth is part of a pack of lies which stigmatizes both art uh, and mental illness. In fact, as I said, you know, Van Gogh, if he didn't have the painting, which with he was trying to stay in contact with the world and his brother, then, you know, he painted, he painted to be part of the world, not to be, get away from it. And it's one of the unfortunate things in mental health things, especially with young people, is they think they can throw away their medicine, write a beautiful novel, and live happily ever after. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen. If you're going to get off your meds, you have to do it carefully and in a very different way. But the arts help you be, they have always helped people like Anne Sexton or whatever. Without the poetry, she's dead 20 years earlier. And I think without the writing, my father probably never gets married or writes anything. And without the, without <laughs> saxophone, the painting, the writing, without what I'm just, you know, I'm just another broken hippie who never got well. So the arts are life-saving. And so don't worry about your children if they start doing art. It doesn't mean they're going to make themselves crazy. They're probably trying to make themselves well. <laughs> Kurt uh, wrote once on one of his wonderful graduation speeches, he said, if you really want to hurt your parents and you're not gay, then go into the arts. Uh, <laughs> and something I love, you know, a lot of people uh, really celebrated the poet Sylvia Plath because she committed suicide. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to make her glamorous and her work important. And I just love that Anne Sexton's friend, the poet, also a Pulitzer Prize poet, Maxine Cuman, was asked to speak at a 25th anniversary of Sylvia Plath's death. And Maxine got up and said something very brave. She said, I hope you realize we wouldn't be here if Sylvia had died of pneumonia. Uh, so that was just a thing of recognizing that we too often celebrate. And I remember when I was just out of college going to the White Horse Tavern and being shown by veterans the table where the great poet Dylan Thomas uh, drank his last drink before dying of alcoholism at age 39, and I said, oh, maybe I, too, can have such a great thing. Uh, and that's what we were told. And Pete Hamill wrote a very good book called Those Drinking Days, where he said he was told in the 50s to be a great artist. You have serious writer, you have to be a serious drinker. So we've pretty much got away from that. Well, want to quote William Faulkner, if I could? Yes, indeed. There were many drunks who wrote well, but none who wrote well drunk. Yes. yes. William Faulkner. <laughs> and, and you also wrote, uh, and I love this, uh, said, I think my father had PTSD, and Faulkner was a depressed narcissist who drank too much. Who cares? The more important point is that in spite of whatever it was they had, they both managed to write absolutely magnificent transcendent literature that makes us all a little smarter and less lonely. 
the number of great artists who were just a little nuts is small. Uh, that's important, too. So, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, and these, some of these things I've been reading are not from his books, but from part of a, a great movie script, which has uh, been optioned by a Canadian producer, and which will tell the story of the commune and many other things, and it's, it's going to be a, a great, great thing to have. I love working with the Canadians rather than the New Yorkers or L.A. people. And one of the things I loved about this guy, he came down and talked to me, and, and he said, well, how much of this would you have done differently? How much would you take back? And I said, absolutely nothing. And he said, thank God. <laughs> so, so, so this is a man, I mean, it's, it's you know, movies, it's hard to get a movie made, but, but this, I really, you know, it'd be great fun if we can get this thing done. Yes, and if, if there is any justice artistically, it will be done. <clears throat> so I guess uh, because I wanted Susan Neville, our wonderful poet, professor, writer, great person, to read something very important that's relevant to everything that we have been saying. I'm going to read a couple of poems, not by me. Um, this first is by a poet named Hazel Baker. Oh, it's in the form of a question and answer, and it's called Oxymoron. Did you say that you have education? No, I've only attended many schools. Are you cultured? Of course not. Aida needs elephants, and they are in short supply here. Are you ill? Oh, I must be. I'm terminal. What an answer to a prayer I was. Hazel Baker was a patient at Madison State Hospital, and she was in a class under the direction of a poet from Bloomington named Brian O'Neill. Right before Central State Hospital closed, I went to sit in on an art class there, and because I was trying thinking about the relationship between art and madness, which it seems like a blessing and a curse, depending um, on how it affects one. I just I thought that some of the poems that came out of the class at Madison State and some of the paintings from the class at um, Central State were just gorgeous, and it didn't matter. It was not that they were created because of or their mental illness. I think it was more in in spite of, or um, as Mark was saying, that it, the, the gifts that came from their illness also were equal to the pain in some cases. Anyway, this is another poem. Um, this is by a poet who is at Madison State named Thomas F. Hale. Hitchhiking goes slow from Indiana, Mexico for no other reason. A hundred miles from the Arkansas border, it's been hell and two nights to get this far. The sign said Chicada, so it must have been a town. The sun near spent, I laid by the road both for rest and sometimes cats stopped to investigate. I wore out my welcome and remaining small change, sipping coffee and asking questions at the gas station. No travel tonight. 
I can feel in my bones there's no hope of a ride. Oklahoma. I found a restroom unlocked and laid down, pulling my arms inside my shirt and sweater, buttoning my coat from the inside. This, these are quotes from Brian O'Neill, the poet who worked with patients at Madison State. And he said, people who are in the hospital, anyone who suffers a traumatic dislocation, they're refugees. Their country's been wiped out. Their family relations are ruined. Their families think they're being unreasonable or evil. They've lost their jobs, been put into a place where they're scared. They've lost their freedom. The desperation and dislocation inspire us to be honest put us closer to the bone. It takes a tremendous amount of imagination for them just to survive. And when I was there at Central State watching the painters, um, Mark in his book talks about mental illness feeling like a kind of a shower of meaning, like everything means something. And I was really aware as I was sitting in there and watching, watching the um, students paint, that we were listening to national public radio and it seemed like every single thing that came over NPR had something to do with madness. So national, this was the day that Fellini died. National public radio tells us Fellini has died. For the wake, workmen are busy reconstructing one of his movie sets. It will be peopled with all these strange, wonderful people he worked with. After Fellini's last movie was released, says a woman's voice, Fellini said to reporters that all meetings, relationships, friendships, experiences, trips begin and end for me in the studios of Sin Esita. All that exists outside the gates of Sin Esita is an enormous storehouse to visit, to plunder, to transport avidly and tirelessly inside Sin Esita. Maybe it is a privilege, maybe a servitude, but it is my way of being. Um, in the classroom that day, there was a man painting only sons. There was um, a man working on line drawings that he um, said were mathematical equations. The teacher was painting triangles over and over again. But what did these poets and artists have in common with Fellini? Maybe nothing more or less than human suffering and the attempt to understand it by forging everything we see in the fires of our own obsessions. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to mention my, my grandmother is an alum of, uh, of Central Hospital. And um, if you're running a hospital and, and your budget is low, fire the psychiatrist first and the art therapist last. I will leave you to say a last word, uh, and then we want to have a particular song by Sophie, but I do like, I'd like to quote this from your movie. Uh, what matters is that art stabilized them, talking about Faulkner and your dad, and gave them purpose, along with a substantial amount of fame and fortune. We have the relationship between creativity and mental illness exactly wrong. Crazy people don't create great art unless and until they are getting better. The illusion that someone in early recovery can tell everyone to f off, chuck their meds, and produce great art has sent many truly gifted young people over the cliff.
Oh, I know uh, what I didn't want to forget. One of the many answers, your great answers that Kurt gave, he was asked in an interview kind of aggressively, well, Mr. Vonnegut, you said that, that art, uh, the purpose of art and writing was to make people feel better. What's an example? And without missing a beat, Kurt said, the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> So I've asked Sophie to close with the great Beatles song, which always makes me feel better, Here Comes the Sun. <laughs> So we can take questions? A couple of questions. So my question is this, Mark. I have read and heard other things you've said uh, related to the pharmaceutical industry or the insurance industry and, and these things. And you're also voted the number one doctor in the Boston area for pediatrics. I'm wondering, how how do you do that? How do you avoid uh, the wrath of the system and and you know get your voice out there and uh, be that voice for you know people who aren't are not able to unnecessarily share their message? Well, I, I believe in irony, <laughs> and I also think that uh, the the you know the powers that be are so powerful they don't have to worry about me or anything I say. Like getting into Harvard, that's, that's funny. Uh, being the number one pediatrician in Boston Magazine, that's just plain funny. Uh, but I don't, I unfortunately think that the drug companies and insurance, they are making so much money, they have no idea and they wouldn't care if they did know what I was saying. And uh, we, we should say that this uh, perceptive question comes from Julia Whitehead, who it just so happens is the founder and curator and person who directs and makes happen the Vonnegut Library and Museum. And unlike other author uh, libraries and museums, the great thing about this one is that it's not just static. It's not just a place you go and get a book or whatever. It makes things happen. 
and it held, it holds uh, events and causes that are the causes that were close to Kurt Vonnegut, so that it's really a living kind of monument and library and museum. Dan, this has been a wonderful evening. I was wondering if you could just talk about, as you are back in Indianapolis at the Red Key, <clears throat> living out your twilight, Talk to us about your mission. Twilight. What? what? Talk to us. The hell you say? Talk to us you about say? your mission. Jesus, I thought this was the the sunrise. <laughs> okay, your new sunrise. What is your mission? What in, is my mission? What is your mission? My mission is to finish a damn book that I've been working on for five or six years. Period. Any other questions? <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, the Vonnegut family, I think, to all of us here, is a part of our soul. It wasn't part of mine. Uh, and what Julia put on recently, or Vonnegut and religion, I found my religion. Mm -hmm. It was Kurt Vonnegut. He made me a better person. Mm -hmm. Your dad did. He made us all a better person. You have, too, in your writing. Read your book. It's a wonderful book. And thank you for coming and sharing this day with us. We, we all appreciate it. Very much. Thank you. This is a music-related question. Yeah. So you played the saxophone, and your dad has written about music, particularly jazz music, in a lot of his books. And I just wondered if you could share a little bit about what music meant to your family, maybe even particularly jazz music. Well, it was—I mean, it was wonderful to grow up and always have the—you know—the things I remember were played until they were worn out. Were uh, Anita O'Day, and, and so there was always—you know—there was always music. There was, all, and um, and it was great. And w Kurt had a lot of uh, gripes and regretment, and one of them was there was a high school English teacher who told him that he was not a musician when he was taking uh, clarinet lessons, and. Uh, Kurt would still get pretty sore about that, and I would lend him the tenor saxophone because it was much easier to play, and he liked that. But, um, I, you know, I think music is, uh, I think it's important to everybody. I think it's the most immediate uh, communication between people. Uh, so, and, and if you do it well, it's a lot more fun. Writing is a hell of a lot of work. And, you know, paintings kind of, watercolors are kind of like music. Oil paintings, more work. Uh, poetry's okay, prose is hell. Uh, <laughs> and, but, um, yeah. Oh, no, just, uh, I, I happened on a, a very interesting factoid about Kurt and music uh, this summer when I was working on the Complete Stories of Vonnegut book and, and reading some correspondence. I discovered that uh, he had played the clarinet in high school, but he never made the A band. He was always, the highest he got, there was A, B, C, and the highest he got was the B band. However, I felt it was all made up for because there was a little anecdote that he had written about where later in life when he was in New York and a celebrity, he had gone to a party with Artie Shaw, and he was taken back in a taxi cab with Artie Shaw, and as, as Kirk got out of the cab, he said to Artie Shaw, I just want to tell you, I played a little licorice stick myself. 
I, that, that made up for being in the B band. No, it is not a question. It is an observation. I absolutely want to thank you, Uncle Dan. What a wonderful evening. This is absolutely the kind of dynamic that this city needs to turn around and say, we are truly an involved community. Thank you so much, and thank you for being here. This is absolutely wonderful. Thanks for listening to the show. Kurt Vonnegut once said to his son, Mark, you're a doctor now. What does it all mean? Mark said, we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by Beer Brewery, Taste of Havana Restaurant, and faithful listeners like you. A special thanks to The Neon Sign for guiding the way to the Red Key Tavern, host Will Higgins from the Indy Star, creative consultant and writer, with special guest, renowned author and pediatrician, Dr. Mark Vonnegut, author Susan Neville, and saxophonist Sophie Fought, co-producers Pat Chastain and Michael Therwechter, and thanks to Jim, Dolly, Leslie Settle, Violet Walker, and the fantastic staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our incredible recording engineer is Steve McQuarrie. Our graphic artist is the talented Sarah Bushman. The WFYI program director is the awesome Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Dan Wakefield and Michael Fairwechter. 